All right, we are one minute past the hour for once in several weeks. I do have an exciting announcement. Uh, I have, uh, I received an email of solicitation from the people at Amazon slash Audible, and they said, hey, would you like to have the podcast feed on Amazon and Audible? And I said, sure, I would. And that was, uh, of course, involving the, the, the normal podcast that I do, but... By extension, I put the Bible study podcast uh, on on the Audible Amazon feed as well. So if you're the sort of person who likes to listen after uh, Amazon and Audible is one place that you can do that. You can find all the audio feeds for the weekly lessons on the Bible study page of the website. Uh, you can find it linked from the homepage, mattchristiansandmedia.com. And the other thing I should mention more often than I do for both the people who are here live and for people who like to listen later. Uh, if you have thoughts or you would just like to uh, drop a line, you can get in touch with Robert or myself also through the Bible study page of the website. So if you have a thought later in the week and maybe you'd like to have Robert's attention about it, there is a box, a contact box to get in touch with him. You can also get in touch with me that way too. And uh, this is interactive, not just when the, uh, when the lesson itself is live, but throughout the week. And I just want people to be aware of that. So, uh, as always, thank you guys for joining this evening. And as usual, Robert has another lesson for us. Okay, well, hello everyone. Today, we are going to cover only half of chapter 12. And if you looked at my blog earlier in the week, I said we would cover all of it. And then I realized that was not possible. Now, I try really hard to cover one chapter a week so that we make good progress. But this time, I just had to cut it short. Um, I think we'll have plenty to talk about. Well, without further ado, let me start the scripture reading. Then, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom he had raised from the dead. So they prepared a dinner for Jesus there. Martha was serving, and Lazarus was among those present at the table with him. Then Mary took three quarters of a pound of expensive aromatic oil from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus. She then wiped his feet dry with her hair. Now the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfumed oil. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, the one who was going to betray him, said, Why wasn't this oil sold for three hundred silver coins and the money given to the poor? Now Judas said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money box, he used to steal what was put into it. So Jesus said, Leave her alone. She has kept it for the day of my burial. For you will always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. Now a large crowd of Judeans learned that Jesus was there, and so they came not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests planned to kill Lazarus too. For on account of him, many of the Jewish people from Jerusalem were going away and believing in Jesus. The next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him. They began to shout, Hosanna! Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written. Do not be afraid, people of Zion. Look, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things when they first happened, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that these things had happened to him. So the crowd who had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead were continuing to testify about it. Because they had heard that Jesus had performed this miraculous sign, the crowd went out to meet him. Thus the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you can do nothing. Look, the world has run off after him. Now some Greeks were among those who had gone up to worship at the feast. So these approached Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and requested, Sir, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, and they both went and told Jesus. Jesus replied, The time has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the solemn truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls onto the ground and dies, it remains by itself alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. The one who loves his life destroys it. The one who hates his life in this world guards it for eternal life. If anyone wants to serve me, he must follow me, and where I am, my servant will be too. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Okay, and that's it. That is the scripture reading for today. Well, um, t 
today we have some very different topics to cover, I guess. The first one is actually one of the most difficult um, biblical consistency uh, questions. Uh, and what I mean by that is that we see the story of Mary anointing Jesus with oil. And I will get into that story here in a minute. But first, I want to address a very difficult question, which is, there are four anointing stories in the Gospels. I mean, there's one in each Gospel. And they are, at least three of them, are incredibly similar, but they're also different in some ways, in some ways that seem contradictory. And that, of course, raises a question, right? Um, of course, uh, Christians have a very high regard for the Bible. So uh, Christians generally do not believe that the Bible has any mistakes. That's what is called biblical inerrancy. Now, not all Christians hold that. And uh, I'll discuss here in a minute that really inerrancy is not at the core of Christianity. The Bible could have some mistakes and it wouldn't make it all false. But whenever we do see uh, at least uh, uh, an alleged mistake, then we do want to look at it and think, is there an issue or is there not an issue? So I would like to cover that first. To understand the context, uh, we should be familiar with the other anointing stories in the other three Gospels. The most different story is the one in Luke. Okay, I'm going to read that one out loud. Uh, quickly and then we will discuss the similarities and differences. So in Luke we get the following story. Now one of the Pharisees asked Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. Then when a woman of that town who was a sinner learned that Jesus was dining at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume oil. She stood behind him at his feet weeping. She began to wet his feet with her tears. She wiped them with her hair kissed them, and anointed them with the perfumed oil. Now when the Pharisee, who had invited him, saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who and what kind of woman this is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. So Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to say to you. He replied, Say it, teacher. A certain creditor had two debtors. One owed him 500 silver coins and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. Jesus said to him, You have judged rightly. Then, turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss of gre greeting, but from the time I entered, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil but she has anointed my feet with perfumed oil therefore I tell you her sins which were many are forgiven that she loved much but the one who is forgiven little loves little then Jesus said to her your sins are forgiven but those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves who is this who even forgives sins he said to the woman your faith has saved you go in peace okay that is the story in Luke and now let me read the anointing story in Mark which may or may not be the same story. That's what I will address in a minute. Um, okay, so in Mark, we hear the following, or we read the following, rather. Two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the chief priests and the experts in the law were trying to find a way to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, so there won't be a riot among the people. Now, while Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, reclining at the table, a woman came with an alabaster jar of costly aromatic oil from pure nard. After breaking open the jar, she poured it on his head, but some who were present indignantly said to one another, Why this waste of expensive ointment? It could have been sold for more than 300 silver coins and the money given to the poor. So they spoke angrily to her, but Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She has done a good service for me. For you will always have the poor with you, and you can do good for them whenever you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She anointed my body beforehand for burial. I tell you the truth, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. 
Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus into their hands. When they heard this, they were delighted and promised to give him money. So Judas began looking for an opportunity to betray him. Okay. There's also a narrative in Mark in Matthew. I mean, now the narratives in Matthew and Mark are nearly identical, so I'm not gonna read that other one out loud. But let me address the story in Luke first, because it is the most different one. Now, why I suppose why even think that all of these narratives are referring to the same event? Well, we have some similarities, right? Uh, the stories happen at the house of a Simon. Now, one Simon is a Pharisee, the other one is Simon the leper. Uh, they involve perfume. The perfume is in alabaster jars. And uh, both accounts involve a woman using the perfume to anoint Jesus with her hair. Well, the hair detail is not actually in Mark or Matthew, but it is in John. Uh, so let's just kind of assume that for now. Um, now, what are the differences? In Luke, in the Gospel of Luke, this anointing actually happens much earlier in the ministry of Jesus. So it's not right at the end. And it happens in Galilee. The other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and John, have the story at the very end of Jesus' ministry in, uh, in Judea, right in the same town. Um, so, the, really the Luke uh, anointing, and, and I'm summarizing here for, for the sake of time, but, but it's actually uh, quite clear that the anointing in Luke is a different anointing, and it happened in the past, uh, given the, the, the point we're in in John, right, in John chapter 12. This first anointing happened in the past. Now, you could say, but what are the odds that both events happen uh, at a Simon's house. Maybe Luke, or John for that matter, got the timing wrong. Well, we actually have uh, scholarly work on this. It, it, it's, it's kind of the nerdiest thing on the planet. Uh, there's a certain scholar that the work she did was go through a number of records from biblical times, including like tomb engravements and, you know, writings and all sorts of things. And she was looking for what were the most common names at the time. And as you might guess, the name Simon was by far the most common name. And I mean by far. Uh, nowadays, we live in a very multicultural world. And not only that, but everyone wants to be different. So people come up with original names or variation of old names and, and the such. At that time, that was not the case many many people were called Simon and actually th this is pretty neat because this explains why the New Testament always refers to Simons with a sort of last name right you have Simon Peter Simon the leper Simon the zealot the New Testament does not refer to anybody as just Simon because there were so many of them that we wouldn't know who they're talking about. Okay, so the fact that both stories happen at a Simon's house is just, uh, I mean, very easily explainable. There were many Simons there. Well, what about the fact that the perfume in both stories was in an alabaster jar? If if you have grown up in church, and I know, of course, some people here have not, but you may have at some point heard a pastor preach on this and said, oh, it was in an, in an alabaster jar that is so special. You know, it really shows how important this perfume was and all this stuff. Well, not to criticize pastors out there, but that's just not true. Alabaster jars were actually fairly common. Uh, we have found thousands of them uh, digging through, you know, archaeological finds. So that's also not all that important of a detail. However, we still have the fact that we have women anointing Jesus with oil and they use their hair and they anoint Jesus' feet. Again, the, the feet and hair part is not in Mark and Matthew, but it is in John. Um, and I think any honest person has to grant, okay, that's, that's pretty suspicious. Like, are these really different narratives? And I think if you assume that the narratives are independent, then yeah, I would say that's that seems unlikely, right? That this event would happen twice just by chance. But I think the most 
likely explanation, and I think an explanation that is very intellectually satisfying, is that these are not independent events in the sense that I think it's quite likely that Mary, in John chapter 12, was familiar with the earlier anointing in Luke. Now, that woman in Luke, um, you know, she was she's described as a sinner. And the Pharisee in that story, he, he thinks to himself, if Jesus knew who was touching him, he wouldn't allow that. Um, there's a strong implication of prostitution, right? The text doesn't say that. But it's heavily implied. Um, well, I think in John chapter 12, Mary is familiar with that story of, the, of that, you know, kind of uh, dirty woman. And I mean dirty like the, in the sense that that's how society would have looked at her uh, doing that very kind act for Jesus. And Mary, in, in John chapter 12, she wants to show such exaltation of Christ that she kind of willingly takes on that, you know, that that same uh, gesture of, of humility. Um, and so that's why we see a similar event happening twice, because it is deliberate. Okay. Now, that explains the difference between Luke and the other three Gospels. But we actually have some issues between Mark, Matthew, and then John. Um, there's two main issues. One is the timing. Matthew and Mark, they at least seem to describe the event in the house of Simon the leper. And actually, uh, forgive me, let me start with the timing of the story. Those two Gospels, they seem to describe the story as happening two days before Passover. And then in John, the story seems to happen six days before Passover. Now, did someone just get the timing wrong? And of course, that, that is a possibility that you know, say John got it wrong, or, or Mark got it wrong, and then Matthew copied from Mark. But I don't, I don't want to just uh, throw that out there so lightly and just just leave it at that because I think that actually these stories are consistent with one another. If you notice, particularly in Mark, when Mark says two days before the Passover. He says that the chief priests and the experts in the law were trying to find a way to arrest Jesus. Um, and then there's a break in the narrative, and he says, now while Jesus was in Bethany, and he describes the anointing. Now, this has all the markers, no pun intended, of a Markan sandwich. You might be thinking, what is that? We have not studied the Gospel of Mark, so... Um, you know, you'll just have to take me at my, word, at my word here, but you can go research this yourself. In multiple places, Mark interrupts a story to insert that another story, and then he finishes the original story. We do this all the time, right? You might be telling a story, and then all of a sudden you realize, oh my goodness, i got to tell you this other thing for necessary background. So you kind of inter interrupt your story, add this other story, and then go back. Okay, Mark does this. And so... What Mark, I think, is doing here, and I think if you look at the text, it really does make sense. Mark is not dating the anointing two days before uh, the Passover. He's dating the, the meeting of the Pharisees and, uh, and chief priests two days prior. And then he interrupts that narrative to talk about the anointing. I'm sorry if you can hear that noise. There's some giant truck in the parking lot making noise. Um, well... Um, so that would explain why there's these different time markers. And, I, I, and now John is very solid, so I think John is giving us the correct time marker, or you know, the intended one, I ought to say, that this happened six days before the Passover. And then you have a timing issue. Um, Mark and Matthew say that the meal happened at the house of Simon the leper, and John seems to say that it happened at Lazarus' house. But does John really say that? And I think when you look at the text, John clearly does not say that. <laughs> it just appears that way when you kind of read it quickly. What John says is in Bethany, where Lazarus lived, they prepare the meal. Okay, John does not actually say the meal happened in Lazarus' house. He's just saying where Lazarus lived, meaning in Bethany. So the meal, I think, happened uh, in Bethany six days before the Passover. 
And I, I'm sorry if this was of no interest to you. I imagine some of you guys are listening to this. You've probably never considered this issue and thought to yourself, what the heck, Robert? <laughs> Why are you talking about this? But I wanted to address it because this is uh, one of the prime examples that people would go to if they said, hey, there's inconsistencies between all four Gospels. And I mean, I just don't think that it holds up. I think that this can all be reconciled. Okay. With that out of the way, um, I, let's actually talk about the story, what it really means. Um, well, the, the story is kind of weird to a modern audience. Honestly, it would have been weird to them, but it is incredibly beautiful. Uh, it, well, and the way to appreciate that is to really kind of understand the context of everything that's happening. So, uh, one, let's let's consider this um, the perfume that is made out of nard. Okay, nard is a plant that grows fairly far from Israel. It it would grow in the modern countries of India and China, and that means that that perfume was in fact very expensive. Not only do you have the fact that this is an expensive perfume but mary does not only use one ounce which would be the typical amount she uses all 12 ounces uh you know this would be the the costco version of the perfume the industrial amount um and 12 ounces of course is about well it is the exact size of a of a typical uh, soda can if you're trying to picture this in your mind um now this perfume was in fact, or 12 ounces of this perfume was so expensive that it would have been worth about 300 silver coins. How much is a silver coin worth? It is one day's wage. So if you consider how many working days there are in a year, you know, if you take out the Sabbath days, the, the 12 ounces of perfume is worth the one person's wages for an entire year. If you uh, use today's minimum minimum wage, which is not really a great comparison, but that would be about fifteen thousand um, dollars, a lot of money at that time. Really, it would be worth more than that. It, it, our dollar comparison is really not all that great. Um, okay, but very very costly. Now the other thing that we need to pay attention to is the fact that Mary touches Jesus' feet. <laughs> Not to talk too much about feet, uh, but, but we really do have to understand this. Feet were dirty both in a literal sense and in a ceremonial sense. What do I mean by that? Jews at the time wore sandals. If you walk everywhere with sandals, your feet are going to be pretty gross. I mean, try mowing your lawn with sandals and see how that goes. Um, and, and so you have that very literal aspect of this, but then you also have a ceremonial aspect, which is that uh, Jews, particularly priests, they would wash their feet before um, engaging in any kind of ceremonial ritual, before going into the temple, for example. Um, and so to touch somebody's feet could make you uh, ceremonially unclean, to where you couldn't participate in a feast or you couldn't participate in certain religious ceremonies. So to, to touch somebody's feet was the most either humiliating or humbling thing you could do, however you want to look at it, depending on whether it's, it's kind of a willing thing you do or not. Um, and the last thing we have to understand is how important a woman's hair was. And I know this is beginning to sound weird. Now we, we're talking about feet, we're talking about hair, but just stick with me for another minute. Uh, we see later in the in the New Testament, uh, the Apostle Paul refers to a woman as her glory. Now, why do I bring that up? Because it gives us a sense of how people valued a woman's hair. Uh, in fact, Jewish women would normally cover their hair outside of the home. Similar, not identical, but similar to the Muslim practices today. Okay. So, let's put all this together. What you what you have here is Mary pouring this incredibly expensive perfume. Oh, and one last detail: what what the Bible here calls perfume 
we would call it an essential oil, okay? Because that's really what it was. It was nard oil uh, that is being used here. Um, okay, so, so she takes this very expensive nard oil and pours it partly on his head. We learned that from the other gospels and partly on his feet. And then she touches, she touches Jesus' feet with her hair. This, this is quite literally beneath what a slave would have been required to do. Okay, this is really a, a demonstration of, of humility that, that boggles the mind. I mean, really, none of us would do this for pretty much anyone at any time. It, it, and, but the, the converse of that then is that this is an image also of exaltation, right, of praise. She is exalting Jesus. And this is exaltation beyond what is due a king. Right? This is the kind of exaltation that is due a God. Um, it, I know that even after everything I've described, we probably cannot quite grasp the, the emotional weight of this, the cultural weight of this, but I hope at least I've, I've helped you some to, to read this short little paragraph in the Gospel of, God, in the, in the Gospel of John with the weight it deserves. Uh, it really is quite incredible. Um, well, so after that scene, what happens? Shockingly, what happens is that Judas decides to betray Jesus. This is the thing that does it. This is the tipping point. And it's kind of odd, right, that this is what, what did it. Um, but Judas says, hey, why don't we sell that perfume and help the poor with the money? Uh, and of course, John makes clear he was lying. He did not care for the poor, okay? And we can ask ourselves, why does Judas betray Jesus? And it doesn't, the Bible doesn't really answer that question. I mean, I suppose we could answer that question generally in the sense that Judas betrays Jesus because Judas was not a true believer in Jesus. Okay, that's, that's obviously true. But um, was it because Judas really wanted that money and he felt deprived of it? Uh, was it because... Uh, at this point, Judas realized that Jesus was not going to be the Messiah he expected. You know, the kind of kingly Messiah that would conquer and eventually give Judas an honorable position in the kingdom. Some have speculated that the reason Judas betrayed Jesus was actually to force Jesus' hand, to force Jesus to act as that king and conqueror, you know. Um, I, I have no dog in this fight. I'm not... I actually am not a huge fan of speculating such things, so your guess is as good as mine. Um, I want to focus on the things that we know for certain. One, um, of course, you know, Judas was not of good character. Uh, this is made clear by John's remark that Judas did not care for the poor. Um, and in fact, if you look at the Greek, <laughs> this dig that John makes on Judas is, uh, it's, it's, it cuts really deep because when he says that Judas was unconcerned for the poor, this is the exact same Greek word that Jesus used when he described the hirelings who were, quote, unconcerned for the sheep. And so they would just desert the sheep. Okay, it's the exact same word. Um, well, the other thought that comes with Judas, particularly with Judas being the treasurer, of this whole operation is it raises what's called the criterion of embarrassment and you may have heard of this before but this is a a criterion that sometimes gets used to assess whether a historical narrative is true or not the idea is that people rarely make up stuff that is embarrassing to themselves right like you have very little reason to come up with embarrassing stuff about you that is not true um, in, it, in this story, this criterion really seems to apply. If, if this narrative is false, what you have John doing is John making up the facts that Jesus handpicked this guy to be one of his disciples. But not only that, Jesus handpicked this guy to be his treasurer. And then this guy turned out to be the worst. He stole money and betrayed Jesus. That would make Jesus and an allegedly omniscient being, a very poor judge of character, right? So it, this really adds reliability to the narrative. No, 
or I shouldn't say no one would make this up. It is unlikely that someone would make this up. Um, now, of course, as believers, in, if, or if you are a believer in Jesus, right, if you believe this story, you know that there is a different explanation. It's not that Jesus is a poor judge of character, but that Jesus is, to put it this way, the greatest chess player that ever lived, and he put all the, the chess pieces where they needed to be for the story to end up in his crucifixion. Jesus is walking towards his crucifixion on purpose, and this was part of the quote-unquote gang. Okay. Um, and then the next scene in this is the triumphal entry. Um, and why, why do we call it the triumphal entry? Jesus finally enters Jerusalem, right, for the last time, uh, well, during his ministry anyways, um, and people receive him as a king. It, it is it is a very odd scene after all of these difficulties that Jesus has had and the, the leaders are trying to kill him, and yet the people receive Jesus as a king. To really grasp, grasp this scene, I think we need to focus on at least three things. We need to focus on what the people say when Jesus comes. Uh, we need to focus on the donkey that Jesus is riding, and we need to focus on the palm trees, or palm leaves, forgive me. The wording is crucial. Notice that when, when Jesus makes his entry to Jerusalem, people exclaim Hosanna. Okay. Well, this word Hosanna, it comes from Psalm 118.25. It, it, it literally means, O Lord, save. Okay. So they're exclaiming, O Lord, save. And then they actually make it even like more clear. They add stuff to that. Um, now, when they say, O Lord, save, this works as a sort of expression like hail to the king or long live the king. Uh, but certainly its literal meaning is, is not lost. Um, now, when they use this expression, it is really, and, and I'm going to, I'm actually going to read here one of the translator notes from the NET uh, Bible translation. Yeah, they say it is clear from the words of the psalm shouted by the crowd that Jesus is being proclaimed as the messianic king. Okay, this is the point where it is absolutely clear the crowds are saying this is the guy. This is the guy. Now, for context, um, well, I'm actually I'm going to skip over reading part of the psalm that I, I quoted in in the blog just for the second time because um, I'm a, I'm a little behind on time. But I, I encourage you to, to read it um, from the standpoint of a believer who knows that he's dead in his sin, but he just has faith that God will deliver him. It's like, God will not let me ultimately die. He will save me. And, uh, and so the, at, in verse 27 of that psalm, uh, he says, the Lord is God and he has delivered us. Tie the offering with ropes to the horns of the altar. right? Because this happened in the Old Testament. Um, so he's referencing uh, a sacrifice at, at the temple. And what's so incredibly ironic about this, this situation is that the same psalm that says, Hosanna, you know, O Lord, sa save us, and, and celebrates the fact that the Lord is going to save us, uh, says, Okay, then let's go ahead and have a sacrifice to celebrate this. But of course, in this context, the same guy doing the saving is the guy being sacrificed. And we continue with this theme of irony, right? Um, Matt, I don't know if you want to go ahead and announce questions, and then I'll finish uh, what I have to say. Sure. As usual, everyone, if you have a question, point of discussion, uh, just write the word question in the chat. I will be happy to bring you in once Robert is finished up. Okay. Um, the other thing that we need to understand is Jesus riding a donkey. Um, for us, like modern audience, it just means nothing. But to them, it would have meant something. When, um, when a king was riding to conquer, essentially when, when, when a king uh, was, was coming to conquer you and destroy you, he would have ridden on a horse. 
But if a king came riding on a donkey, that was a symbol of peace. Okay, normally it's when the king would come to enact a treaty. So Jesus here is coming in peace. It, it is really uh, a, a great symbol, just a beautiful image. And of course, this donkey also connects this whole scene to an Old Testament prophecy, which I will read because it's very short. It says, Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Daughter of Zion just means Jewish people, right? Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is legitimate and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey, on a young donkey, the foal of a female donkey. Okay, so it connects to this prophecy and it symbolizes peace. But then you also have the palm branches. Now, the palm branches really probably would have triggered a, a certain kind of image in the mind of the people present um, of uh, that this imagery in their minds would have been that of a victorious king. Uh, we get this image particularly in Maccabees, which is one of those books that the Catholics have in their Bible, but Protestants don't. And there's two scenes in which after they win, they celebrate with uh, palm branches. So Jesus is coming to Jerusalem victorious and in peace uh, and to save. And really all those things come together. Like Jesus really did make it to the end, right? He's, he has made it to his crucifixion, which is the purpose why he came to the world. Um, but he comes in peace because he's not going to come just destroy all the wicked he's in fact going to submit to them and through that save them okay so again great scene and i'm gonna run out of time so i'm gonna say one more thing and then leave the last bit of my blog i'll just move it over to next week um the next thing that we see is the greeks uh come to jesus and they say hey uh we uh, we want to meet with Jesus. And notice the response from Jesus. Jesus doesn't actually address the request. He doesn't say yes or no. He takes that cue to go into a discourse. And what he says is, uh, the time has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, why is this relevant? First of all, who are the Greeks? Greeks really could refer to three groups, potentially. Uh, you could have the diaspora Jews, so Jews who are living in the Greek world. You could have Greeks who are proselytes. They have fully converted to Judaism. Or you can have Greeks who are God-fearers. So they're Greeks who fear, aka follow, the Jewish God, but they have not fully converted to Judaism. And really the first two groups, um, uh, the diaspora Jews and proselytes, they, they normally would be referred to using a different word. So the fact that the actual word Greeks here is used, I think quite clearly is referring to Greek God-fearers, not proselytes, but God-fearers. Um, so Gentiles, right? AKA Gentiles. <laughs> Why is this relevant? Remember all the way back to the prophecy or the promise that was given to Abraham, right? When the story begins, God says to Abraham, um, I will give you lots of descendants. Your descendants will form a great nation and conquer. And eventually, there will be blessings that go out to all the nations through your descendants. Well, if you, if you, then if you divide the story into those three acts, acts one and two are over, right? Like, okay, Abraham had lots of descendants. Then act two, yes, Jerusalem, I mean, Israel, um, was very successful, conquered many nations, and then of course they stopped following God and God punished them, hence the situation that they're in now under Roman rule. But we've seen Acts 1 and Acts 2 play out. And now that the other nations, right, are coming to the Messiah for salvation, that is a clear indication of Act 3, right, of now blessings will go out to all the nations through the descendants of Abraham. It's just incredible. I mean, I, I know that not everyone here is a believer and that, that's totally fine, but I hope even if you're not, you can appreciate the, the story for what it is, right? Um, and I'm gonna stop there and, and open it up for, for questions. And I suppose if, you know, if there are none, I can continue, but uh, this is a good spot. 
Well, as of now, I actually don't see any. Uh, so if everyone needs a reminder, well, Denby actually has two. So um, okay. Denby, why don't you go ahead and uh, if there's time, maybe I'll ask Robert some things I have on my mind. Okay. Uh, yes. So um, the first question uh, is uh, about um, the the sirens, or, or more specifically, the um, the idea of the the leper and the Pharisee. And this is a cultural question: Could the leper be the Pharisee? Or uh, you know, if you see what I mean? Yeah. I mean, I think that that is possible, uh, but I think where we see this uh, Simon the Pharisee, like I said, that's a story in Luke. And, mm -hmm. and I think there's other reasons, the other reasons I mentioned why I think that that is a different narrative because it happens much earlier in Jesus' ministry and uh, the conversation is completely different. Um, you know, Judas is not involved. There's this other guy and they, essentially they're talking about who has been forgiven most and all that. So. I think we have solid reasons to understand that as a different event. Um, okay. that, that, that's why I would say these are different people. Hmm. Okay, well, I wondered because, you know, in some uh, cultural situations, if you're a leper, maybe you can't be, you know, the, what you were before and so on. I wondered if how that worked in this context. Yeah, well, then let me kind of address that more specifically. I, I do think that the story that we read in John is happening at the house of Simon the leper. And um, what the Bible doesn't tell us, but I think we can safely speculate at least that Simon had been a leper and he was probably healed by Jesus because if Simon was still a leper, they couldn't have had the meal at his house. It would have made them all ceremonially unclean uh which would get in the way of the passover meal um so i don't and remember that jesus he followed the law perfectly um so i don't think that jesus would have had a meal with somebody who was a leper at the time uh that was probably a sort of last name that stuck with the guy since he used to be a leper right okay that makes sense thank you uh the second question is um a bit about um prefiguring, but also, again, a kind of a cultural question. Um, so, you know, obviously, uh, talking about the Greeks, it is kind of alluding to the future ministry and the expansion of the gospel to the, you know, outside the Jewish world. But I'm wondering, uh, would um, Philip be the one they, the, they, they approach B because he's a Hellenized Jew specifically, that they're, that, you know, he would have grown up in a Greek context? I think that sounds very reasonable. I mean, I do think that that is correct. I, um, we have to read between the lines, right? And particularly given his name, I think, mm -hmm. I think what name. you, yeah. yeah, what you described, I think is correct. Okay. I've always been a little bit curious about that. So thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks, Denby. Uh, Chris has a question. Chris, go ahead. Hi guys. Uh, Thanks, Robert, for and Matt for taking my question. Uh, my question is, uh, Robert, do you think that the Israel that we're reading about here is the is same as the Israel that exists today, or if they're two different things? Oh my goodness! Okay, this is going to get me in trouble, but uh, I'll go ahead and and answer it. <laughs> I no, I, I don't think so. Uh, I don't think so. I, it, and where this is going to matter is in eschatology, um, right? The, if, uh, if you are what's called a premillennial, uh, a premillennialist, you probably do believe that the current Israel is a continuation of the older Israel. Um, I, there, there are several reasons why I don't think so. I, I think, the current nation is just a political uh, uh, structure, organization, or entity, a political entity, and not the religious uh, people that it used to be. Uh, I think that the, the New Testament uh, grafts the church into the people of Israel, and now 
the current Israel is anyone who believes in Christ. That that would be my view on that matter. All right. Thank you, sir. Hmm. Okay. Uh, I think we're caught up on questions. Again, if uh, anybody else has a question or a thought that you'd like to share, just type question into the chat and I will uh, bring you in. Uh, but that does leave us plenty of time, Robert. So I'll give you two options. Uh, you could carry on with some of the material that you were not able to get to in your lesson plan or, um, what, I, what was on my mind, you know, again, one of the things I appreciate is your, uh, your removal of your own personal views or your reluctance to push your own personal views. But the question of why did Judas betray Jesus is one of significance. And I, I would like to hear your thoughts about that, if you have any that you were holding back. Yeah, I honestly, it's so hard to tell. In my opinion, other people may have opinions on this as well, but it just, it just doesn't give us much to work with. In fact, I quoted uh, three of the Gospels there in the, in the blog. I don't know if you know if you have that in front of you, but it's it's just a little bit, right? It just says mm-hmm. uh, he decides to betray Jesus. Uh, he complains about the money. Um, I here's here's my take on this. I think that Judas expected uh, a political king. Um, who would who would free Israel would would dominate the entire area? You're right. In their minds, Jesus wasn't wasn't just going to liberate Israel. He was going to defeat Rome, and right. You always want to uh, hitch your carrier to the winning horse. Like I'm thinking, he thought, "Hey, I'm going to stick with this guy. He's going to be the new king. He's going to be the new emperor, and I will have a prominent position." In his cabinet so to speak um and then he eventually started to realize this guy is uh, i don't mean this disrespectfully okay i'm putting i'm putting myself in judas's position but he maybe thought this guy's kind of a loser like he's not going to be king he he's going into jerusalem when they're clearly going to kill him uh and now there's all this weird stuff going on when they're anointing him and all this and and yeah i'm out I'm out. This is not going to get me where I thought I was going. That that's my best guess, but it's nothing but a guess. Okay. Well, thanks for the uh, thanks for your adding some information to that. Uh, as I mentioned, we are all caught up on questions, so uh, I don't necessarily have more curiosities myself. Uh, but with the remaining ten minutes or so, perhaps you'd like to just carry on with some of the stuff that you weren't able to get to. Yeah, yeah. So I really had one more topic to get to. So this is this is perfect. And this one is actually probably the most, I don't know, controversial. Um, so um, Jesus, you know, he, he uses this, this imagery that uh, he will be like a kernel of wheat planted in the ground and that kernel of wheat must die such that it can produce uh, more wheat, right? So it can it can produce greatly, many times over, um, the original, you know, the original kernel. Um, and we understand that, right? We understand that Jesus is going to die for the sake of many, for the sake of all. Um, but then Jesus continues on to say uh, something kind of rather scandalous, right? He says, the one who loves his life destroys it, and the one who hates his life in this world guards it for eternal life. If anyone was to serve me, he must follow me, and where I am, my servant will be too. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Okay, so particularly that first part, the one who loves his life destroys it, and the one who hates his life guards it for eternal life. This is actually the most common uh, lesson that Jesus teaches. He says it all over the place. And in, in the blog, if anybody's looking at it, I quote it many times, like Matthew 10, 39. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life because of me will find it. Matthew 16, 25. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will find it. In Mark, if anyone wants to become my follower, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life because of me and because of the gospel will save it. And finally, let me read the most 
shocking and scandalous of all of them, this one is found in Luke. And it says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Okay, granted, that is quite shocking. Now, I'm sure you guys, if you're not a Christian yourself, I'm sure you've met many Christians and they're not hating on their parents and their wife and their kids. And so what's the deal, right? And the this is one of the key points of Christian morality. And so that's why I wanted to, to explain it, at least to some length. Let's address the word hate. Why does Jesus say you must hate your parents, you must hate your wife, you must hate yourself, right? You must hate even your own life. Um, well, the reason that, that Jesus can employ that word, or he does employ that word, uh, is because he's using it in a different way than we would use it today. Today, when we speak of love and hate, we have this kind of emotional dimension to that. Jesus is, is using it in a different way, really in the same context that it was used when covenants were, were signed, they were entered into. So let me explain covenants right quick. And, and I think this will the, the picture will really come into focus. Covenants were ancient uh, treaties that nations would enter into, but sometimes individuals or other groups that were not nations, but but um, they were very common with nations, particularly a large nation, a very powerful nation, and a smaller, less powerful nation. They would enter into a covenant. Okay, and covenants had their own kind of language, just like contracts do today. Right? And if you don't understand that that language is special, that it means special things, you might miss some things. Think of a modern contract. Normally, it begins with recitals. Then you're going to have promises or, or covenants, and then you may have conditions. Notice these words mean very specific things, like recitals in a contract, for example, uh, describes what the contract wants to do, but it's actually a non-binding section of the contract. Well, imagine somebody reading one of our contracts 2,000 years from now. They might not realize that. Okay? So it's important that we familiarize ourselves with the language. Well, what is some of that technical language that applies that applied to covenants? Well, uh, part of it was that if you did not follow a covenant, right? If you broke your word, if you said, hey, as part of this covenant, I promise to do this and this and this, but you didn't do it, the language that was used is that you hated the covenant and you hated the other party. And if you followed the covenant, if you did what you said you would do, the language that was used is that you loved the covenant and you loved the other party, right? Uh, if, you know, if, if you're ever reading through the Old Testament, keep this in mind. It will help you greatly to understand that this was covenantal language. Um, another part of covenantal language would be like blessings and curses, right? If you follow the covenant, what you would get out of it, those would be spoken as blessings. But if you broke the covenant, the, the consequences, right, kind of the legal consequences uh, for your breach, um, they would be called curses. Okay. Well, so keep in mind then these words love and hate. In this context, they're not the emotional words that we think of today. They refer to obedience. They refer to allegiance, to doing what you said you would do. Okay. So let, let's apply that to this idea. When Jesus says in Luke particularly, I'm picking on Luke because it is the most shocking of the statements, right? But it, it sheds light on all the other ones. But it says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, you know, even himself, he cannot be my disciple. What is, what is Jesus saying? Your highest allegiance, your highest obedience has to be to me, has to be to God. Now, keep in mind the, the cultural context here. Many Jews saw Christians as apostates, people who had left their religion. And so 
parents, like a parent may tell a child, hey, stop following this Jesus guy and do as I say, or I will disown you. Your, your brother or sister may tell you that. Even your wife may say, stop following Jesus or I will divorce you or something along those lines. And what is Jesus saying? You have to hate them. Again, what, what does he mean by that? Please don't mishear me. Um, he's saying, you must disobey them and you must obey me. You must follow me regardless. Okay, so these are statements of allegiance. Now, really what's most shocking in this is this idea that you must even hate yourself. So you must even disobey your own desires and obey the desires of God. Right. So this is why we can describe Christians as dying to themselves because they're they're disobeying their own passions, their own desires. Um, now here comes the fun twist in all this. Okay, fine. I will disobey myself, my own desires. I will disobey my parents. I will disobey everyone, and I will follow God. Okay, God, what do you, what would you have me do? And God responds, "Love others as you love yourself." Right, and and so we end up in a similar but not the same place. We end up in a place of loving others. In fact, if you read the verses about how husbands should love their wives, they must love them sacrificially, like Christ loved the church. It says right, and Christ died for the church. But we love others out of our allegiance, out of our, out of our obedience for God, and so it makes our love for others. A little bit different right in, in the sense that when the world by the world I mean that's a common Christian way of referring to like the non-Christian beliefs if the world says hey you gotta love this person or to love this person you just gotta affirm whatever they believe you know even if they believe let's say they're a different gender and I'm not trying to get political here but I'll use that example the Christian has to say look man like I I, I want to love this person like I love myself, but I do it. I filter this love through my allegiance to God, and God tells me I must be honest. So I can't lie. Like, I can't lie to that person. I want to serve them, right? I, I want what's best for them, but I have to do it through uh, God's law, and God does not allow me to lie. So, um, And so this is why Christians... Uh, they, John Wesley, he's the guy who started the Methodist Church. He always described this as holy love, right? He wouldn't just speak of love or holiness, not because he was against that, but because he wanted to convey how the two came together. Holy love. Um, and uh, that's what I had to say on that. Any questions on this? Uh, well, th thanks for clarifying that. Incidentally, as Daniel notes, uh, that is uh, this passage about hating your parents and yourself actually came up on the call-in show. It was a while back, but I remember as Daniel notes, wrestling through trying to wrestle through what that meant with, of course, my total lack of knowledge of scripture, but trying to, we were trying to theorize about it, meaning something like what you've just articulated. And I think you, you did that really well. And it makes sense. The idea being that as important as loyalties to family or friends may be, there has to be something higher than that. There are things that even your family could do, violations they could commit that would cause you to leave them. Uh, you might give your family a lot of leeway in terms of what you'd be, a lot of patience with misbehavior or other offenses. But there are things that are so terrible that they could do or uh, there are there are valid reasons to cut even that tie. There's something higher on the priority stack, and and so I appreciate that uh, explanation. We are right at the top of the hour. I did see uh, Daniel also had a request for comment. So Daniel, um, if you can be very brief, uh, go ahead. Oh, thanks. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. It was just uh, just a quick little thing. Um, uh, the uh, the movie the um, Jesus of Nazareth is one of the uh, better movies about Jesus's life that's ever been made. But I always had this gripe about the film that it portrays Judas as kind of a sympathetic character, in that yeah he basically wanted Ju uh, Jesus to be kind of a re revolutionary, and he eventually sells Jesus out to the Sanhedrin in order to sort of push him in that direction. 
the problem with that, that I have with that is that uh, scripture, you know, describes Judas as the son of perdition, and it makes it pretty clear, although we don't know, have explicit detail on his motivations, it does seem like scripture is trying to tell us that his motivations weren't good, whatever they may have been. Yeah, yeah I think you're right. That's pretty much it. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Daniel. Okay. Uh, we will leave it at that unless you had additional thoughts, Robert. No, I'm sorry that I spoke so much today, but I guess there weren't really any questions. So hopefully we didn't, uh, you know, leave anybody out from participating. All right. Uh, thanks, everybody, for joining this evening. Appreciated. Uh, we will be back next Saturday as usual, 8 p.m. Eastern time. As a reminder, if you need to listen back to any part of the lesson or if you'd like to get in touch with either Robert or myself, check out the Bible study page of the website, mattchristiansandmedia.com slash Bible dash study. You can also find it just linked on the homepage. That's a little easier. Uh, but we'll catch you next week, I hope. Have a great week in the meantime.